You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. The topic, the topic um, for tonight, and the, um, the title is deliberately chosen to be at least slightly provocative, is uh, right, whether, workers, whether workers are more than wage, uh, are more than wage slaves, whether employees really are more than, uh, are more than wage slaves. Uh, and I don't want to uh, recreate you know, the debate about between the North and the South in the 19th century as to the relative virtues of slavery and capitalism. Um, but I think that it's, uh, that it's worth framing it that starkly at the outset um, to try and, try and figure out what it is that distinguishes right, our, um, our intuitive sense that there's a difference between being someone's slave and working for them. Uh, now, in the in the um, contemporary era, there are a number of cases that seem to um, to blur the line for us. Child labor, for example, um, right? Even though right, even though it's oh, even though it's um, freely contracted, um, workers are right, workers in sweatshops. Right? So there are circumstances in which contemporary in which um, contemporary Western notions of labor ethics seem to feel that you can have a freely entered into contract, which nonetheless which nonetheless is morally equivalent to slavery. Um, so what I want to try and do in this year is to try and build out of the sources of halacha a, um, right, a vision of employment which, is, which I, I'm going to argue is that halacha is continually conscious, deeply conscious. It's one of the most central elements of the, right, of the way in which the Torah understands the world, of the um, close affinity between employment and slavery. Um, an attempt to explain how it is that halakha, recognizing that affinity, tries to deal with it, um, and move from there to try and uh, right, try and set up some principles which would guide uh, the way in which um, halakhic Jews and halakhic communities ought to pr- um, seek to affect the workplace, um, both in terms of the way in which um, individuals treat employees or treat employers, and we're focusing tonight on the way in which employ- employers should treat employees, not on the not on the countervailing obligations, and because this is an area which is often this is a matter of great political dispute, uh, trying to figure out the role that right the role that um, people committed to halacha should play in the political process of working out employment ethic. Uh, most of you are probably aware that this has been uh, this is one of the central issues um, played out in over the last century in, Amer- in American domestic politics, um, in part- and dealing with issues such as the right to unionize uh, to some degree. Right. If one took communism as a genuine ideology, the way it was, the way it originated, as opposed to the way it played out in practice, right? So the right. So the issue the, the issue of the Cold War, right? The whole the right, the major political blocks in the 20th century were fought around this. The extent to which it's possible to separate between working for somebody else, right, and being and being a slave. I also want to mention one other thing as an introduction here, uh, which is that. Um, one of the great contributions of the Rav, Rav Yosef Dosalvechik, which I think uh, deserves uh, deserves acknowledgement, um, is that is the um, the elevation of the conce- of a particular conception of human dignity um, to the center of religious anthropology, right, what it is to be a human being. Um, so those of us those of us who re- um, who live entirely within the world of the Rav. Right, his theology is framed beginning and end by the Rav. So the Rav seems to be you know, continually talking about dialectics. Right, there's Adam one, and there's Adam two. There's majesty, there's humility. There are all these, there are all these poles. 
Um, and so one might think, so what the Rose contribution is, right, is setting up some kind of interesting balance between things, right, or framing ideas that, that people, the relationship people already knew. Um, but I think really the, one of the radical things the Rove does is, let's take, in Lonely Man of Faith, so he sets up these two characters, Adam 1 and Adam 2, right, and he argues that the depiction of the human being in the first story of creation found in Bracious and the second story of, uh, the second story of creation found in Bracious depict two different aspects of the human being, Right, one of whom, one of whom is is uh, driven by miluas aretz dechivshuha, right, fill the land and conquer it. One of which, is, one of whom is driven by, right, is driven by loneliness and an experience of utter inadequacy relative relative to God. Um, the the real contribution there against the backdrop of the backdrop of traditional Jewish uh, Jewish history is to give this independence, right, religious significance, to the Adam whose role is to ca- to conquer the world. You don't find so much, right, in um, right, in Jewish history immediately preceding that in Jewish theology. Of right, I don't know if you find anywhere preceding the Rav somebody who says that the advance of technology is a religious good, and that right, and that um, human be- human beings who create faster modes of transportation are fulfilling the will of God in a religiously right, and are engaging in religiously significant action. Um, and this is one of, one of the one of the really uh, really significant theological contributions that I've made. Um, and so he, he adopted the notion that central to being a human being, not entirely, right? Not not um, not the entirety of human being, but a big part of what it means to be a human being is to have the, is the conception of dignity, which he defines as control over one's environment. Right? It's right, right. He thinks that he thinks that human beings before fire are undignified because they can't control the temperature around them. And the, right, and, the, right, and the discovery of fire, or the creation of fire, or the gift of fire, depending which midrash you take, um, right, are, is a tremendous religious advance. Because it means that human beings now, right, human beings now have the dignity to control their environment, and human beings are supposed to be created in Salem Elohim, and the image of God. Right? You will not find, you know, as opposed to... Um, in very powerful earlier works, you can find you'll, you'll find um, long, long speeches about the dangers of Pasuket, right? The Pasuket Chumash, of people saying right? The strength of my hand has made all this well. So of course the Rav would agree that you can never think it's entirely you. But as opposed to prior thinkers who would have said, and therefore, right? One should really always acknowledge that everything comes from God anyway. So whatever you do, right, is really just play acting. Right, because God really, God really accomplishes everything in the world. The Rav says, "No, right? You're created in the image of God, and what you do makes a difference." Okay, that plays out in his conception. Conception of humanity means control over one's, um, the dignity of humanity, and fulfilling one's nature as a Talmudim means having control over one's environment. And while that, um, right, that plays out often, I think, in his theological writings as dealing with technology. Um, right, and dealing with the capacity of the human species um, right, to control their environment. There are places in which I think he makes it clear that this also relates to, um, to some degree, it can be a theology of wealth. Um, right? Rich people have more dignity than poor people in that sense because they have more control of their environment, um, which we can decide do you like or not. Um, and, right, and, it, and I want to say that it has an implication which so far as I know has not... Um, been spelled out elsewhere, but I think it follows, uh, which is um, in the realm of employment. Right? That um, that the note that 
um, control of, if control of one's environment is a definition of dignity, and dignity, right, and dignity is central to um, is central to being a full human being, so then one has to figure out how, in a workplace, one maintains one's dignity. Okay, that's a broad theological introduction. To some degree, it tips everywhere I'm going halakhically, uh, but it'll give you it'll give you a framework, and now I'm going to try and do it through halakha. Uh, okay, so we take a look at um, source number one. The Gemara Bavnitzia. Everyone has one of these packets now. Um, okay, so the Gemara Bavnitzia. We're not going to do it. Um, we're not going to do it at great length. It's a very interesting. Uh, it's a very interesting discussion of contract law and customary contract law, not our issue. Um, it's right, the the issue that matters. Right, the issue that matters to us um, overall is the Gemara discusses a an array of cases in which a worker a worker contracts. Um, Worker contracts to do work um, for a particular salary, and turns out that, and it turns out that that um, that the salary that he contracts for is not the salary he's going to get. Okay, generally, right, the Gemara explains this by claiming that there's a middleman who deceived the right, who deceived the worker as to the right, as to the salary they were going to get. Right, there's some cases in which, as a result, the worker has a legal claim. Uh, either against right, either against the middleman or against the person for whom he actually does the work, and there's some place, there's some case in which the Gemara says that all he has is a tar omit. Right, he has a moral claim, although not a legally enforceable claim. It's a very interesting it's a very interesting um, idea because usually, in um, usually legal systems are not so are right, are not so fond of acknowledging things as being wrong but not legally redressable. Um, right, but al here is this category of things that they're wrong. We tell you that it's wrong, but also, but, but there's no legal remedy for it at all. Uh, it's, it's interesting how halakha acknowledges that it's worth um, thinking about what it says for the nature of halakha, that it acknowledges that its practical legal system can't remedy all wrongs. Um, okay, the case, um, right, the, ca- the, case that, um, the case that interests us is a case in which a, um, a, work, right, a worker is offered a salary above the going rate. Okay, the presumption of the Talmud generally is that there is a, that there is an efficient market, and you can determine what work and work what work is actually worth is the going rate that actually represents that actually represents value. So let's suppose that you're you're hired you're a you're a ditch digger, okay, and ditch diggers are paid four dollars an hour. Somebody comes along and says, right, I promise you five dollars an hour to dig a ditch for me. Okay. And in the end, it turns out he wasn't authorized to offer five. He was only author- he was really only authorized to offer four. You dug the ditch. Okay, you have no claim to the, right, you have no claim um, for the five, um, and that because you got right, you haven't actually lost. You did work that was worth four dollars an hour. You got paid four dollars an hour. Okay. Nonetheless, the Talmud says right. You can pick this up. Um, it's right where it says the first paragraph begins alternatively. Um, Okay, which is uh, it's about 20 lines to the bottom. Is alternatively, we're dealing here with workers who are um, right, who are also landowners, and thus he can argue that had not been offered for, it would have been beneath his dignity um, to hire himself out. Right, very interesting. Right, it's very interesting. So the moral claim you have is not right, is not that you were right, is not that you were that you didn't receive the value of your labor. The moral claim you have is. That if you, that had you not um, had you not been told that you would receive above the going rate or at least a higher of two prevailing wages, you could have worked for yourself instead, 
and made exactly the same amount of money. So there's no financial loss involved at all. But the moral claim you have is that it's undignified to work for others. That's a very powerful statement. Uh, you, did the, you did the exact same thing. You received the exact same value for it. Nonetheless, you have a moral claim because you worked for somebody else. The Thomas language right, in the Aramaic is the um, umberlay because you can say to him, um, right, the, sorry, here we're dealing with a worker who is himself a landowner. Right, so it's the option of being an employee or not. Um, the umberlay, and, right, and he says to the, to the middleman, had you not told me for, right, had you not told me the higher wage, have a zilaban mil salif gure. Right, it would have been right it would have been right it would have been beneath me. Right, I would have found it degrading um, to hire myself. Now on the one hand, right, on the one hand I say a very powerful statement about the indignity of employment. Right, working for yourself is inherently more dignified than working for somebody else. On the other hand, uh, what does it say about somebody that what their um, what does it say about somebody that what their um, right, that their dignity can and should be purchased right for a dollar an hour right, uh, right so we have we have two we have two ways of framing this one way of framing it is that halakha right, that halakha has a commitment to freedom of contract and people are entitled to degrade themselves for whatever price they want okay because right, because we're not interested in controlling people's choices in that regard. People have the option of degrading themselves. The other thing is that somehow, at a certain value, work is no longer degrading. Right, those, are, those, are the two, those are the two basic choices. Okay, but I want to use... The basic thing I want to get out of that source is, the, um, is that idea that Al-Akhaz sees inherent moral superiority in... Uh, I, I think the first reading is much more plausible. Inherent moral superiority in self-employment as opposed to employment, as employment for others. Not one which it's willing to grant legal redress for, but right, but um, right, but moral superiority. Okay, moving to source number two. Source number two is a um, is a a uh, Talmudic statement that Talmudic uh, story that has become quite famous. Um, and I'm I'm going to argue though that um, it's become quite famous for the wrong reason. Um, and I should note that although it's famous nowadays, it has very little resonance in the history of halacha. Uh, it's the story we like to quote nowadays. But um, but Poskim through the years apparently did not like to quote it, uh, despite its attractiveness. Uh, the story is as follows. Okay, we quote it now in the context of equity, right? It's talking about how halacha isn't all about these rigid rules, right? Really, halacha is about justice or something of the sort. We'll see whether it's about justice at all. Um, so the story is as follows: There are some porters who are carrying a wine for Rabbi Bar Barchana. Rabbi Bar Barchana is apparently uh, Rabbi Bar or Rabbi Bar Barchanan, depending which text you have. Uh, is apparently quite wealthy, and um, they break this barrel of wine they're carrying for him. And what he does immediately is he seizes the, he seizes their garments. Perhaps they took their shirts off to carry it, so they couldn't resist, <laughs> right? So he immediately runs and he takes their garments uh, as payment for the uh, for the barrel of wine that he has um, that they drop. Okay, they go to Rav and they ask Rav as the um, as as the uh, as the judge. Right? Do they right? Does he have a right to their garments? And Rav says to Rav Barbar Khanan, "You have to give their garments back." So he asks a very interesting, very interesting question. He says, "Dina Hachi, is that really the law?" Now, we don't know why he asks this question. Uh, right? We could th- right? We could think we could think really well of him and say he's asking this question because 
Of course he's going to do it anyway, but he wants to know whether his intent should be to do it to fulfill the law, or his intent to do it should be to engage in some kind of super-legal uh, super ethical action. Um, but it's also entirely likely that he's saying, you know, I understand why you have sympathy with them, but, you know, you're stuck, you got to give, right, you know, you have to follow the law. Uh, the 10th graders and I learned, uh, read Merchant of Venice together, right? So, you know, this is a, a very Shylockian moment. You know, that, right, you have to, right, whatever, you, whatever the judge's personal feelings are, are relevant, you have to follow the law. Okay. So Rav replies by saying, yes, and then he quotes a verse in Mishle in Proverbs, which is usually not a source of law. Um, so this, right, this generates many, many years of controversy over whether things which are beyond the law can become law, can be enforced on particular people, etc. Uh, as we'll see, I think that's not the, I think that's not the issue. Okay. Then, um, apparently emboldened by the sympathy of a judge who will tell somebody something is the law even though he has no precedent, uh, the workers say, well, you know what? Not only do we have our garments back, but we worked. We carried that bar- we, right. He hired us to carry that bottle of wine, that barrel of wine, 20 blocks, and we carried 19 and a half blocks. Then we dropped it and it went spoosh. <laughs> but hey, we carried a barrel of wine, 19 and a half blocks. And we, don't have, right, and we have nothing to show for it. Um... So they ask for their salary. And they mention that, by the way, we're poor. By the way, we're poor. So Rav turns to Rav Arachana and says, give them their salary. And he asks again, is that the law? And he quotes the second half of the Pasuk in Mishlei. Okay, what is this story about? Um, so you could claim the story is about justice or equity, but it doesn't seem to be about it. It seems to be about taking money from the rich and giving it to the poor for no particular reason except that they're rich and they're poor. Right. Uh, right. There's no, there's no, right. There's no notion that Rav has acquired his wine barrels, um, right, by oppressing the poor. Um, right. There's no reason at all. There's no, re- there's no reason to assume that they deserve the, more, the money more than he did. Just they're poor and he's rich. And if that were the case, uh, Rav, then Rav would be violating explicit pasuk in the Torah. The Torah says, "Lo sedar dal Right. You're not allowed to favor the poor in, um, in judgment. For very good reason, that the only protection the poor have is the law. And if you start, right, and if you start allowing judges to interpret the law in accordance with what they feel, right, more likely what they feel will be in, will be in favor of the rich than the poor, because the rich can give them more. Um, right. So the Torah, the Torah tells us that judges are not allowed to do that, and and the Gemara talks about David Melech, who, when he found a case like this, what he would do is he would give the poor person the money out of his own pocket. <coughs> That's an excellent thing to do. But, giving, right, but taking, from, taking from the rich and giving to the poor is not the province of a judge. So how do we read this story? Right, what, could Rav be doing, what could Rav be doing that is legitimate? So we could read it, and this is the way um, that I think it's conventionally taken, uh, if you don't take the first approach, is to say that when Rav says That's the law, what he's really saying is something like, you're a prominent person, and so you shouldn't do things that are shady even if they're legal. And that's sort of like the law for you. Right? My teacher, uh, Rabbi Bleich, has, has an article arguing that Lithnim Mishurah Hadin, going beyond the letter of the law, is a, right, the reason, is a subjective category. There are, right, that, whereas the law is binding on everybody, Lithnim Mishurah Hadin, right, things beyond the letter of the law, are binding on different classes of society differently. And that's why they're not quite law. Uh, it's a, it's a, um, it's in some ways an appealing concept, but again, it doesn't seem to me to be having the right to have a role to play in courts. That's my issue. 
So I want to suggest what, um, so far as I know, is a novel interpretation. Um, you can uh, right, you can decide if you're convinced by it or not. And I should say that this was an, uh, I thought of this uh, back when my mother was a um, was an insurance lawyer dealing with uh, dealing with bankrupt insurance companies. And you had a whole lots of bankrupt insurance companies, and they were debating how to right, how to how to uh, sw- how to swap the money from one to the other. Uh, I had a difficult time getting morally involved in this um, because probably it's the same stockholders in each company anyway. And the, right, the only the only people who it makes a difference to is the lawyers, uh, right? Because same, right, probably all the companies are owned by exactly the same widows and orphans. Um, if you think it's that, or Warren Buffett, or right, whatever it may, whatever it is who, who uh, owns it. Uh, but in the in the in the context of bankruptcy law, so we came across this really interesting notion called setoffs. Um, setoffs are what happens if let's say let's say that um, I owe somebody a hundred dollars. They owe me $100. Okay. So we can either say, well, I owe them $100, they owe me $100. In order to discharge these debts, what needs to happen is I need to take $100 and hand it to the somebody else. Right? And they will then form, perform a formal masakinian, right? They will take the $100, they'll raise it over their head, they'll tuck it under their arm, right? All, all, right? all the formal thing, right? all the form, all the formal engage in Masonic handshakes, whatever it is that, form, that performs the Kenyan halachically. And uh, then they will, prom- they will hand it back to me. And I will do exactly the same thing, and now the debts are discharged. Another way of doing it is to say, hey, you know what? You owe me 100, I owe you 100. That's it. Okay, now you might think that's a lot easier, and why should we ever bother going through the rigmarole? So in American law, the Nafkamina, is what happens if I owe you $100, you owe me $100, and then you go bankrupt? Because you owe me $100, but you also owe each of a thousand other people $100, and all you have total is $100. So if I were to say, you know what, I forgive your loan, all right? You don't have to pay me. I won't pay you. So guess what? I get my hundred dollars back. The other nine hundred ninety-nine people don't get anything. That's not fair, all right? So what will happen? What will happen? In fact, in American law, in those cases, usually, is we won't allow you to do that. We'll say you have to pay the bankrupt person a hundred dollars, and then that hundred dollars will be divided equally among the thousand of you, all right? Each of all right, each of whom he owes he owes hundred dollars. Okay, and again, this is what my mother was involved in, trying to figure out when you can say that, when you can't say that, and many, many lawyers make lots and lots of money having arguments about, uh, about just this issue. Okay, so the question that um, arose for me is, well, gee, what does halakha say about this? Does halakha view loans as automatically canceling each other out? Or does halakha view loans as entirely independent? Um, and I want to suggest the following. It seems to me at least possible... Um, that, that what Al-Akha says is that it's the judge's discretion as to whether or not to allow a set-off. There is, no, there, are, there is no formal rule. A judge can decide to say, okay, you can cancel each other's debts, or a judge can decide to say, you know what, we have to treat these debts, these debts independently. Okay, now we go back to our case. It's all very well and good for Rav to say, pay their salary. Okay, let's suppose he pays their salary. Okay, they, so now they have the $20 they earned that day. Let's suppose the barrel of wine was worth $100. Okay. Now, is there any hint that they don't owe him for the barrel, right? If they didn't owe him for the barrel of wine, this issue would never come up. Of course, he couldn't take their garments. So obviously, it's presumed here that they broke the barrel of wine in a way which makes them liable for it. Okay. So now he gives them, right, so now he gives them their salaries. They have their $20. He sues them. They owe $100. He takes the $20 back. 
We've accomplished a great deal here. Right? The only thing that we've done is perhaps, right, when Rav says, we could say, when Rav says, give them their salary, what he means is you should deduct their salary from the amount of money that they're owed as opposed to saying that they have to pay the full value of the wine barrel. We could say that. It doesn't sound like the, it doesn't, it doesn't fit the, um, oh, give them their salary, right? You know, they st- it seems that rather, it's rather anticlimactic if the next line of the story is he turns to them and says, okay, now give it back to him. Okay, so what is he accomplishing? So what I want to suggest is, uh, what would normally happen, right? What would normally happen if um, porters who don't make very much money break $100, right? Let's say they make $10 a week, uh, and they break a $100 barrel of wine. So now, right, so now they owe him $100. They come to court, and he says, give me the $100. What do they do? Work 10 weeks for free. Work 10 weeks for free? Well, they still got to live during that time. We set up a payment on an installment plan, right? We say, you know what, you have to pay this debt at 50 cents a week for the next four years. Okay? So what's going on here is, there's no question that they have, right, that they, that they have a debt to him. Right? Let's even assume that it's true that he has a debt to them also. Because in fact, they work for that hours and he owes them their salary. What Rabbi Barbar Khanan was trying to claim was a set-off. Right? Since they owe me Right, for the wine barrel more than I owe them in salary. So I'm simply not going to pay the I'm simply not going to pay their salaries. And then they can pay me the rest on the installment plan. Okay, and what right and what Ra, what Rao says to the, says to him is no. Right? The law it right when it comes to the discretionary category of set offs, I have the right to say I have the right to require you to view these in, as independent debts. You pay them their salaries because you can. Right, and that's a debt, and you have a lachic obligation to be a motitain scharov, right, give his salary the same day he worked. You have no right to delay that. And that will work out how they're going to pay you back. Okay, that's what I think is, although I, as I say, so far as I know as of now, although I haven't um, you know, done the comprehensive search, this is a novel interpretation, but I think it's actually a very compelling read of what the sugi is about. Now we're trying to figure out, so what does it stand for? Okay, it doesn't stand for the notion that you can override law for equity. It doesn't stand. Right, it doesn't stand for the notion that you always favor the rich over the poor, right? But it stands for a notion that we have an acknowledgement that you can have situations which are formally legally correct, but because of the power imbalance between people, it will yield. Right, it will yield an unfair result. Okay, and part of the job of a judge is to try and remedy the right the results of the power imbalance without changing the law. And fundamentally, a major, right, a major power imbalance is between employers and employees, right? Because employers, right, uh, empl- because employers have more money, um, and because employers have the money, and the employee, right, and the employees have already done the work. Okay, so I want to say that. Yes. There's, a, there's probably a million permutations that have the same argument that employers don't always have money, and employers are not necessarily wealthy; they're just employers. Yes. And in this particular case, it's entirely possible that that employer would have only had the money if he was able to sell that barrel which they failed to deliver. Sure. So I should say, right, you can reverse it. You can say, let's suppose that there were, I don't know, a rabbi who had hired a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) And the lawyer, you know, forgets to file file a pleading in time and so the rabbi loses the case, right? So you you can reverse it. And I would would agree with you that in practice it would would be reversible. It It should go case by case. But my suspicion is the reason that this is that this case is cited, right, is used as the exemplar, 
of what may have happened many, many times, if I'm right, right? this may have been a principle of Talmudic law, is that nor- the normal situation, right? the normal situation in a capitalist economy is that, right, is that employers have more power than employees. Um, right, the, right, again, not, I'm not, not arguing it's an absolute rule, and you always have to figure out you know, what you do in cases without with lying cases, but I would, I would argue that, in a, that um, normally in a capitalist economy that would be the case. Okay, so now we have these. Right now we have these um, two notions, perhaps. Right, one is that there is more dignity in working for yourself. The other is the recognition that um, that there can be positions of powerlessness created by employment, and the courts will try and right. The courts have will see it as a moral obligation to redress that if possible. Yes. Michelin, yeah. Or whatever, which it sounds to me like it's a, you know, it's a, you know, it is. It's a, like, the, the, the din that this is what you should do, even though it's not, you know, uh, a philosophy. Well, I think I'm attention, because the question he asks is this the law? And the answer is yes. Right? So. Oh, I don't, it doesn't say yes, it says it just quotes the question. No, it says in, yes. Oh, in. So that's the tension you have between is it law or not law? And my solution is it is law. But it's laws that it's right, but it's only the law because the judges, the judges are making a moral judgment. It's a case where the judges have the capacity to make law. Right. That's alright. Okay. Uh, yes, sir. Why does the judge have to defend discretionary choices of Pasuk? Or is just saying my discretion is, is purely on the knowledge of this line? I mean what you're saying is in this is a din, right? And then and then but I have to explain my discretion to you, my discretion was to go with the workers against you. Because of this pasuk, yeah, right. But this pasuk, but, but why, why, meaning, why does he have to defend his discretion? Why, meaning, why should I? Why should, it, usually a dying wouldn't want to explain his discretion. That's an interesting yeah. argument. So, but Rabbi Barbarchanan is probably a member of the rabbinic class. He knows perfectly ah. well. And, and so, therefore, uh, so therefore, therefore, he felt that he had to justify yeah. discretion. Yeah, right. that would be my take. Yeah, to just say shoot at a dainy wouldn't go over well. All right. Um, okay, so now we're going to get to what I think is a really, really cool Gemara. Um, but I want to try and, and um, talk about how we're going to read this Gemara. So we can read this Gemara in a really straightforward, classic halakhic fashion, in which case it's just about where it ends up. Right, it's one way of reading Gemara, right? Gemara you know, has a starting point, has an end point, and we end up, and what we care about is the end point. Uh, and the, the Havaminas that are right, the initial thoughts that fall by the wayside, okay, they were useful back then. Now, we're, now they're done. Another way of reading Gemara is to see it as a literary, as a deliberate a sugya, is to see it as a deliberately constructed liter, right, literary, literary um, unit, in which right, it's, right, you're, the movement from a, right from point A to point B to point C is significant, right? Because not ju- they're not just wrong turns. You're supposed to see these this thing as a whole at the end. Okay, so I'm going to suggest, we'll read, right, I'll take you through the sugya uh, as if it were just about the end, but I'm also going to argue that you have to, that the, the proper way to understand the sugya is as a form of literature um, where the structure is as important as the conclusion. Okay, so we'll show you what I mean by that. 
Okay, so the uh, so sugya begins with Rav Nachman and Rav Chista saying a statement which appears um, at, at first glance to be entirely irrelevant to our topic, which is, um, Okay, now, why is, um, now what does that mean? I'm walking along the street, and I see a watch. Now, I happen not to wear watches. So I don't have a real interest in picking up a watch, because I'll just lose it in a day anyway. Um, but I know that I have, I know that I have a friend who would love a watch just like that. So I walk over. So I, so I walk over to this watch in the street. I ascertain that in fact it's logically legitimate to be mine because it's left in a place where the person has no hope that it will survive. Right? There's no there's no initials on it. Whatever. So I can actually. Right. So this is a watch which, in principle, one could right one could keep. And I pick up this watch and I say, this watch. Right. This watch is hereby acquired from my friend Reuven. Okay, I do the Masonic handshake with myself, whatever it is it takes <laughs> to, right, to accomplish the uh, to accomplish the canyon. Um, okay, that doesn't work. Can't do that. Now, why can't I do that? Ordinarily, we have a concept of zechia in halacha, which is constructive agency, which is that I can do things for somebody else's benefit, even if they didn't tell me to. Okay, right, right. If what I'm doing is entirely to someone else's benefit, let's suppose, uh, right, someone comes up to me and says, you know what, I owe so and so a thousand dollars, and I'm leaving, right, and I'm leaving the country tomorrow, and I'm never going to be back again. Why don't you take this thousand dollars for him, for, right, on behalf of him? I can do that. It's, it's his advantage to have the thousand dollars. So why can't I pick up the watch? So the answer, which goes back to the bankruptcy case we talked about before, is that I can only do things that benefit one person if it doesn't harm anybody else. In order to harm anybody else, I have to be or I have to be an explicit agent. A constructive agent can do things that benefit one person and are neutral with regard to everybody else, but not in a way which harms anybody else. The example the Gemara gives is: let's suppose the the person who owes a thousand dollars to hundred people dies, right? Um, right? It has no heirs. So now all their property, right? All their property is there. Uh, or even they, have, they have heirs, right? But their estate is now left, and their estate is worth $200, and they have $100,000 in debts. I know that a friend of mine, right, is one of the people who owed the money. So I just go in, and I grab all the property from my friend. Okay, it's to his benefit, but it's harming everybody else. Because otherwise, they would have had an equitable distribution of that. So even if it were legal for my friend himself to take it, I can't go in without his authorization and do that and harm other people. Okay, so the Gemara says, well, guess what? When I pick up a lost object, I'm depriving everybody else of the opportunity to acquire that lost object. Right? Because there may be thousands of people out there who need watches. And now only my friend gets it. Doesn't work. Can't do, can't, you can't do that. You have to... Um, but you can't, you can't pick up a lost object for um, somebody else. So that is Rav Nassman and Rav Kistu State. Okay. Um, Rava, right, Rava comes along and challenges Rav Nachman of Chista, and he says, I have a Brita which shows that this is incorrect. The Brita says the following. Eighth day, Rava Rav Nachman, so Rava cited a Brita to challenge Rav Nachman. Mitziat po'el latzmo. Okay, the findings of a worker belong, right, belong to the worker. Amed varim amurim. Right, when are these things, right, when, when, when did I say this? If the employer says to him, weed with me today, hold with me today, but if the worker says, if the, if the employer says to the employee, do work with me today, 
then all the findings of the employee belong to the employer. Okay, now what is this case talking about? It's not talking about a case in which we understand the employer's statement to the employee to mean including find objects for me. Because then it would be explicit agency and be irrelevant to our issue. All right, the claim here is that the relationship of an employer who is hired to do undefined work right, um, right, to an right, to an um, to an to it, um, an employee who's hired to do undefined work to an employee um, is going to be the issue. But right now, the Gemara is being naive. Okay, the Gemara, all the Gemara is saying is, you know what? In this Brita, there is a case in which a worker, without explicit authorization, acquires an object for a third party, namely the employer, and it works. So you, Rav and Rav Nachman, must be wrong. So Rav Nachman and Rav Chista must be wrong when you say that you can't acquire a lost object for a third party. Because here we have a case in which you can. Okay, to which the Gemara says, no, your case is, your case is irrelevant. It, right, the reason that the, employer, the employee can pick it up is not because the employee is an implicit agent, but rather because Shani Paul de Adokiad Balabayatu. Because an employer is considered just an extension of the, uh, the employee is considered just an extension of the employer. Not the usual case. Okay. The, um, Gemara, the, then the Gemara goes on to say, but Rav says that employees can back out of contracts in midday. And in some fashion, not made clear to us, the fact that employees can back out of contracts in midday means that they can't be considered extensions of the, of the employer. Why? We don't know. It's an assertion. Right, that, somehow the, that somehow the capacity to break a contract is incompatible with the claim that you are an extension, that you're just an extension of the employer. To which the Gemara then ends up saying, well, you know, right, very reasonably, no. So long as you're under contract, you're an extension of the employer. When you break the contract, you're not. Okay? So if I, all I, read, if all, if I taught you the sugi that way, right, the sugi has fundamentally nothing really to say about employee-employer relations. The sugi is about whether you can pick up objects and acquire them for third parties. We attempt to prove that you we attempt to prove that you can't from a particular case of an of, of an employee. We end up saying no, that case is that case is irrelevant because employees legally are considered to be um, the actual agents of their employers, right? And you'll say if they're really the actual agents, an actual agent can't just break his agency, can he? Yes, he can. Right, that's a technical rule. Okay, that's if I taught you the sugi straight. Now we're going to teach you the sugi as literature. Uh, okay, as literature. The right, the claim, the the interest in acquiring objects of uh, objects of third parties, is right, is a red herring. That's an excuse to bring up the issue. The issue in this sugya is what is the relationship between worker wait between employees and slaves. Okay, the core of this sugya, right, um, right, is the distinction between the kind of worker who can acquire objects, right, who can, who right, who is considered an extension of his employer, and the kind of worker who is not. Right, it's really what, really what this whole sugya turns about. Right? In terms of the formal structure, right, in, terms of, right, in terms of the argument, we really don't care about the kind of worker who can't acquire, right, who can't acquire objects whose findings belong to him. Right? That doesn't matter to us. But as literature, that's central. So let's try and go back and understand this. Right? What the Brightness says is, generally, a worker's findings belong to him, um, but 
when we say that's only true of a case in which the employer said to him, weed with me today, hoe with me today, but if he says, do work with me today, all of a sudden, then, um, right, then he is entitled to require objects for the employer. What's the difference between those cases? Right. Let's show us the fact. Weed with me today, hoe with me today, yeah? Okay, if he's hired for if he's hired if he's hired for a task or he's hired for a time. Okay. Now, how does the Talmud formulate the difference between that? Right? It says that if you're hired for a task, then your hand is not the hand of the employer. But if you're hired for time, then we say, Shani Poel, a worker is different, the Adokiad Balabayatu, because your hand is like the hand of the employer. Now this is an interesting claim. Why should it be? Right? Why should it be that that employer handled by time, that employee by time, is more the hand of the employer than an employee by job? Okay, we take that. We'll go further. Um, right. So then the Talmud says, no, no worker can ever be right. No worker can ever be the hand of the employer, because workers can always break contracts. This is an American law is called a ban against enforcing specific performance. Right? Even if you sign if you sign a contract to do work X for salary Y, and you choose not to do it, all they can do is not pay you your salary. They can't make you do the work. They can make you liable for damages for failure to do the work. Right? If right if they, if they can if somebody contracts to fix your roof, and then they refuse to do it, and it rains in, you can sue them for the damage, but you can't get the police to come and make them fix your roof. Okay? Right? Halacha is the same rule. There's no right. You can never enforce specific performance. Okay, so Thomas says, "Gee, what is it? Right? What is it that you can? What is it you can do if the? Um, why is it that employers that employees can break their contract? That doesn't tell you something really about the central nature of employment. We're on the last, right? The last two lines now. Amar right? he said to him, Kol So long as he hasn't broken the contract, kiyad balabayatu, then the hand of the employee is like the hand of the employer. But when he does break the contract, kihadarbe, tam achrinahu. There's another issue, which is." It's a verse in which God says, the Jews are my avadim. Avadaihim, they're my avadim, below avadim, lavadim. And they can't be avadim to other avadim. Now this is weird. The reason this is weird is that the Torah in three different places tells us the laws of a Jewish heaven. So how can we now have the rabbis coming along and saying, oh, Hashem says they're, avad- they're my avadim, they can't be anybody else's avadim. What do you mean? Right? The first thing the Torah does after the Sarah Hadibra Right, it gives us right. There's this little stuff at the end of the Easter. We're not quite sure what that does. Then we have a whole parsha kisik ne'avadivri. So how can we have a halacha, which is based on the claim that Jews can't be avadim, when the Torah has three different parshios telling us exactly how Jews can be avadim? Right, clearly something very right, very strange is happening here. What has to be, what has, what has to mean is that the, that Chazal work, and this is right, this is important to them, with two different definitions of evid. Right, there's a kind of avdut which is what's defined in the Torah, which is permissible, but there's another kind of avdut, right, which they're willing to say the Torah explicitly forbids. But, right, so if they really, right, so why does the Torah use the right? Why did the Chazal use the language of avdus for the thing which is permitted? Because they know that the line is very, very fine. I should realize right, we're not talking about things that are different, absolutely in kind. We're talking about a continuum. And we draw the line at one place, and we say, right? We say beyond here forbidden, up till here permitted, but they're not different things. Okay, so we have here is a sugya which is very explicitly acknowledging 
the fine line between employment and slavery, to the point where it says that employment with specific performance would be slavery. Okay. Now we'll try and figure out... Now, now let's, right, so now we have... The Talmud actually sets up three different situations of employment. The first is... Right, the, um, oh, sorry, one other literary point I need to mention. Right, when the Talmud says that if you're hired, by the, if you're hired by, for time, right, so then you can acquire things for your employer. So again, it had the option of saying because you become your employer's explicit agent for all purposes. Instead, it says your hand is like your employer's hand, which is very parallel to the language of the claim, right, the hand of a slave is like their master's hand. Right, so literarily, this entire sugi is set up Right, moving, right, moving from employment to slavery. Three categories. There's the person who's hired by the task, who is not a slave at all. There's the person who's hired by the time, who, right, who would be a slave if they didn't have the right to break the contract. And there's a person who has no right to break the contract, and that person is actually a slave. Okay, what brings, right, what unifies all these things? Okay, well, so I want to argue, a person who is hired by the task has chosen what they're doing. Okay, so they're right. They say, right, I am right, I am doing I am doing this because doing this right because doing this is something that does not bother me enough, right, that I'm willing to do it in exchange for in exchange for X. A person who's hired by time is not choosing what they do. What they're basically doing is giving up their autonomy to somebody else. They're saying, right, it's worth it for me to let you decide what I should do during that right for money. Now that's a much less dignified thing. Right? Because right in the first case, in the first case, I'm not doing anything I wouldn't want to do. Right? I'm just doing it for you, as opposed to for myself. Alright? The ultimate level is if I choose to do something for myself. Right? Nobody else's will is involved. Second stage is alright, I choose to do something because you will give it for me. Third situation is I choose to listen to you. Because you will give something for me, right? And the last, right? Um, and even, right? And that is still legal because I can always change my mind. I'm still choosing to do what you're telling me to do. If we got to the point where I put myself in a position where I have to do whatever you tell me to do, that's slavery, right? But, right? You have, to, right, you have two extremes. One extreme is freedom; I get to do whatever I want. The other extreme is, flav- is slavery; I have to do whatever you want. And everything in between. Right, is right. Everything between is right is on that line. So that's what I think this. Right, I think what I think this sugya is about. Right, is about trying to right to emphasize the importance of right the importance of um, of autonomy as a right as a, as the key moral element in employee right in employee employee relationships and defining that as a central element of what it means to be Jewish. Right, that being kibibin Israel avadim. Right means that Jews are never supposed to be subjected to a will other than God. Now we understand that you can't run an economic system that way. Right, people aren't going to pay you to do whatever you want most of the time. Uh, right, but so we make so we make a compromise with this. Right, we don't say that we create a society we create a society in which people can only work for themselves, but we tell you that we understand that any situation in which you are choosing to work for somebody else is tinged with slavery, the more you're letting them make the decisions as opposed to making your, your own decisions, the closer it gets to slavery. And we won't, we won't allow you even freely 
to um, right to contract and to make a contract you can't get out of, and that's what, by the way, you'll ask. So why does the Torah allow the category of evidence free? So the answer is that the, that the that one of the key laws in Ebedee free is that you can always buy your way out of the contract. Right? Ebedee free is a six-year contract, which right, at any point you can buy your way out of it. Now, why is that called an Ebed as opposed to a normal contract? The answer to that is that usually what happens, in, and this will go back to the last thing, what happens is that an employee um, gets paid afterwards. Since an employee gets paid afterwards, um, Right, so they um, so they're not they're not in debt yet to the employer, and so they have a certain amount of freedom. Right, they're free. Right, they have a, they have a free they have freedom to um, to break the contract, and right, and there's no hold there's no hold the employer has on them after that. But an evidentiary is paid up front, and why does it, why does somebody become an evidentiary? Because they already have debts. Right? Meaning that the reason they take the money up front is because they need the money up front up to, right, to pay someone else. And that means that although in principle they have the freedom to break the contract, in practice they never will. Because they, right, they simply won't have the money. Right? If they had the money, they wouldn't have done it. So Evidivree is, really, right, is one step short of what, the, right, of what Chazal forbid. Because it's not really specific performance because you always have the right of paying, but because you've been paid in advance, you don't quite have the same freedom. Right? Because you can't break the contract unless you pay your way out of it. Whereas all the other contracts, right, you haven't been paid yet, so you can just break the contract. Okay, and right, I think you have, again, you have those, right, you have that same continuum. Okay. Um, other, right, other, other elements of, um, of employer-employee relationships that show up in Chazal, which I think are similar, um, so in the Sifra, sorry, Sifri, Departure of the Heart, got to correct that typo. Um, or is it Sifra? No, it's Sifra. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Nirtza is a good question. Nirtza is a good question. Uh, I don't have a really good explanation for Nirtza. Uh, except that we view it as a deeply, right, we view it as deeply reprehensible to yeah, do that. Yeah. Um, okay, so the Sifri, Departure has to be Sifra. Right? right, so we have a rule which says that you cannot force your, your Ebed to do Avodat Perev, although you can take somebody who is in a free, right, who somebody can contract with you specifically to do Avodat Perev. Okay, what's Avodat Perev? So all we know, Avodat Perev, gee, that's what the Egyptians did to us, right? So it must mean literally backbreaking labor. Right? Perach is to break into pieces. So it should mean you can't make your evidivri carry heavy stones to build pyramids. Right? That's what it should mean. The fascinating thing is that um, that's not the way halacha takes it. Halacha takes of a dot perach as we move to, I think it's here, right? Um, to source number. Um, Source number six, right? So, right, five, right, five, five repeats the same thing. Source number six tells us that avodat perech is pointless work. Avodat perech is telling somebody, "Go dig under that tree until I get there." Right, as opposed to go dig under that tree until you have a big enough hole. Now, what does that mean? So when I teach this, I always. Um, I a story I believe that I read in uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. Uh, the story is of a man who was taken to a labor camp, 
and his job is to turn, right, there's a, there's a millstone, uh, or a mill, mill wheel, set in the wall of the labor camp, and his job every day is to, right, is to pull a rope that turns the mill. And he does this for 25 years, um, but he endures it because he knows that all the grain and bread in that camp is coming because he's doing that labor. It's backbreaking labor. It's in a sense, right? He knows that they could do it. You know, they could they could do it much more efficiently than having one person pulling a rope and turning the wheel. But what keeps him going is that his work has a purpose. And then one day he's released, and he walks outside the wall, and he sees that the mill is not that the wheel he's turning is not connected to anything. And he dies. Okay. Now, all right, right. So what were they do- what, what, right? What were they doing to him? They were doing avodat perach. Now, what right? What is the what is the central element of avodat perach? The central element of avodat of avodat perach is having somebody do something only because it gratifies you. Right? Having somebody do something because it expresses their subordination. Now, if somebody has real freedom to break their contract. Now we pointed out, right, that you always have freedom to break a contract in halakha. But we call an Evid Ivri an Evid because we know that it's only a theoretical possibility. And in practice, most Evidim, right, most, most Evid Ivris won't have the capacity to break it. Therefore, we say that we're going to interfere with that freedom of contract and say you can't be an Evid Ivri, alright, to the point of agreeing to do Avadat Perach because that's taking away too much of your autonomy. Right? We're not, right? Even though an evidence re is a time worker, right? their time for the next six years is that person, which is already perilously close to slavery. Right? So if you're a time worker who's been paid in advance in that way, so we, right, we, have, so we warn the employer you can never tell him to do something just because you want to have him be your slave. Because right? again, the, the central element of right, the central moral problem in all such relationships is having right is having somebody do your will as opposed to theirs. Okay, one last piece, and then I'm going to write tie it all together. Is there's another right, another another halacha that's explicit in the Torah about employer-employee relationships? Is the right is the um, the idea? This is sources seven and eight that one must pay employees on time. Okay. Um, and again, we, we mentioned this again, right? Every element that we've mentioned it goes back to that interpretation of the story with the porters. Um, now, the reason for this, I think, is that um, employees cannot afford to sue employers for their wages. Because if an employer fails to pay and the employee sues, what happens is, A, first of all, the employee starves before they, right, before, right, before they get their money. B, they get blacklisted. Right, right. No one, right. No one will, no one will hire them. So allowing, right. So if, if, right, and if an employee has to wait for their wages, right, then they remain, right, they remain completely terrified the entire time of alienating the employer, for fear that he won't pay them. All right. So, right. So the reason the Torah sets up this legislation, right, is to tell you, right, and we we interpret this halakhically not as meaning you have to pay on the day, but you have to pay at regularly defined agreed intervals. Right, but the employer cannot have the decision to make as to when to pay, because then the employee is continually going to be worried, right? That he, right, that he won't get paid. Okay, so you put it all together. Right, my argument is um, that um, yeah, this is not—you can't always do this, but this is one of the places where 
I think halacha is really, right, uh, really, you know, clearly, right, clearly um, and powerfully um, making, uh, right, making strong moral claims about the nature of society in a way that really resonates today. Um, right, that the, the goal of the halachic labor ethic is to maximize the dignity, which means the autonomy, uh, which means the autonomy of the employee, which, um, which is reflected in A, the capacity to choose what work you do, B, the guarantee that all the work you do is productive as opposed to, as opposed to expressive of subordination, and C, the capacity to, the capacity to change employers. Right, not just to choose your task, but to change your uh, right, but to change, but to change whom you work for. Because if you can't change whom you work for, then you're doing their will and not yours. I think this has um, concrete implications in a number of areas. Although all that needs to be nuanced. Um, the obvious one, which is easy to say in Massachusetts, is the health insurance. Right, employee-based health insurance, uh, right, keeps many people in a practical situation in which they can't break contracts. Uh, right, um, and it seems to me that there's a very strong case to be made that it's a um, a major, uh, major halachic um, desideratum, at least, right, to try and create a, a culture in which that's not true. Um, so I think you know, that, that so all the all the in the discussions about health insurance should be right, should be delivered should be delivered in Massachusetts. It seems to me that halacha has a great deal to say. Um, now you have to balance this against the interest in, in an efficient market, right, and making sure people have the highest health care. Doesn't tell you necessarily what the conclusion is. I don't think the task of setting up halachic morality is to tell you what policy has to be. It's just to tell you that right that the co- that we see the cost of binding employees to employers is a very high moral cost, and there better be really good right really good reasons that one chooses to retain the existing system. Uh, another another area in which this um, plays out on the same line is um, is a slow vesting pensions. Um, right, let's suppose right if I work if I work for somebody and the deal is right they pay let's say they pay my salary, but they pay um, but they but they then they'll pay eight percent of my salary into a pension fund if I stay for five years. But if I leave within five years, then I lose all, all, of my, all, the, all, the, all the pension money for the first four and a half years. That's a way of making sure I can't break my contract. As are, you know, on, the, on the lesser scale, rules about that I don't get matching funds, you know, matching pension fund until I've worked for two years, and which, which if they're industry standard, means that if I leave somebody, I have to start over. Right? All, right, all those attempts, right, all those attempts, non-competition agreements, right, all those are attempts to make sure that... Um, that em- employees can't leave, and obviously the reserve clause in baseball, prior to the Kurt Floyd case, um, right, would have been seen as an unmitigated evil. Um, so actually, we really are really are interested in that. Now there are balances, right? The right, the um, the reason that uh, the reason that there is a, um, a genuine interest in allowing slow vesting pensions is because we want employers to invest in employee training. Right, and that's a value also, particularly because employee training also increases right, your autonomy because it makes you more employable at, right, at different things. So again, I'm not saying that there's, an ob- right, that there's an obvious policy implication, but when one is weighing the issue, right, one, should see, right, one should see this as a really important, uh, important moral um, element. Another issue that shows up is in terms of um, workplace harassment laws. Um, leaving aside the issues of how, exa- of how one provides evidence right, and how precisely one can define uh, what constitutes harassment, sexual or otherwise, um, in the office. But what it tells you is that halacha sees 
the employer-employee relationship as one in which there is often a power imbalance which can often which can very readily lead to abuse, right? In which the employee is seen as an instrument of your will as opposed to as opposed to a a, a, um, a productive a productive being, and that there is I think real support for creating a right, for creating a legal environment in which employers can only ask employees to do things that are in, that are objectively productive. Um, again, how you work that out in legislation is complicated. Um, there are obvious, obviously, obviously, um, I can say that in uh, in the context of this program, right? Right? You know, so I'm not good at writing job descriptions, um, right? On the other hand, I, you know, I feel, I, uh, and I, I know that in one of my previous jobs, there's a real tension. On the one hand, if you have a really clear job description, then they can tell you you have to do this. On the other hand, if you don't have a compl- really really clear job description, they can tell you to do whatever they want. Um, right, and how you balance, and which way gives you more autonomy, really depends on the nature of your relationship uh, with an employer. If you have an employer who is entirely goal-oriented, then not right, then having right having a descri- having a very vague description gives you a great deal of autonomy. Uh, if you have an employer who is means-oriented, um, right, you know, who just who doesn't really focus on, te- who doesn't tell you, you know, get get this right, get this accomplished, but says, but tells you do this. Then the, the clearer the job description, right, the um, right, the less labor you have. Um, so again, how it plays out in specific cases, how it plays out legislatively, I think is open. Uh, what the value is, uh, I think, should be clear. Um, it is regrettable, I think, that unfortunately, so far as I know, Jewish institutions and even Orthodox halachic institutions, even institutions of Torah, uh, do not seem to have made it um, in the past on the whole. Uh, this that is a primary element. Of their uh, of their um, of their workplace environment, I'll say for fun that when I worked for Maimonides, uh, and there were all sorts of there were all sorts of uh, clauses about time about time whether or not it was productive in the contract, um, etc. So I used to send my contract back saying, all you know, subject to the prohibition of Kelibin Yisrael Avadim, as defined <laughs> as defined by, uh, and we had some conversations about what exactly that would mean. Um, but you know, as I told, of course, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want, you know, to have me sign a contract which was us or anyway. Um, I don't know how much, how much that accomplished. Um, uh, you know, first of all, you have to be sure that you know, everyone else will interpret the blessing the way I do uh, in order to get that done. Um, but I think that you know, certainly it should be um, it, that at every degree to which halakhically committed Jews have influence. Um, right, whether you know, in our, as 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 employers, uh, in the institutions that we create as a community, and in our role in the general community, I think that these are values which are really, really important. Um, I hope I made a convincing case that they're not just my values, although I like them, <laughs> uh, but that they they emerge uh, they emerge explicitly from Torah. Uh, I tried to argue at the beginning that specifically for the Boston non Orthodox community, um, right, they're reflective of the unique contribution. Uh, that Russell that should make. And as always, I thank you for listening. Yes, question. I would hope like serving in the Israeli army would be like a special case because they might say they have no way to break the contract. They have to but getting paid. Yeah, ar- well, army, army duty, right? Army duty. I hope that's probably like yeah. a special case. Army duty and the whole notion of a draft, right, is a you know is, is a is a is a unique case, and one has to figure out. Yeah, the claim in communism was right that if you serve the if you serve the people as a whole, 
right? That you know, that's not the same thing. You know, we didn't we didn't we didn't accept it in terms of normal economic behavior, but to some degree we may accept that argument in terms of right, you know, in terms of general good of the community. Um, yeah. No, no, I don't get it. But how you work it out, you know, why it is that the community. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.